Psalm 126. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Um, As I said at the start uh, in the interview, I was keen for us to be able to have some time reflecting on the Psalms um, as a wonderful way of describing to us what God is like. Uh, If you look at the front part of that handout, you'll see down the bottom uh, that, at least in my mind, the key to reading the Psalms Uh, is to ask the question first and foremost, what is it telling us about God? Um, Oftentimes, I think when we read the Old Testament in particular, we want to know how should we live, and that's an appropriate question to ask. But actually, the starting point is to ask what the Psalms tell us about God himself. And there's a couple of reasons for that that I've listed underneath there. Um, The most obvious, of course, is the fact that you and I, on the whole, aren't Old Testament Jews or descended from Old Testament Jews. So the Psalms that were written for the Jews in the Old Testament they don't really seem to speak directly to us and therefore there's a risk if we just try and repeat what is there. Uh, Instead, the Psalms, I think they talk about what God is like and he's the same yesterday, today and forever. So there's there's a value, I think, in starting with what God is like. Of course, if we're asking what God is like, then that naturally causes us to ask, how does Jesus fully reveal God? Because as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the most complete revelation of God. And I hope at the end of this as well, you'll have an ongoing confidence to read the Psalms for yourself. So with that in mind, let me pray and we'll get started. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and that it's been written for us. We pray that you might speak to us this morning by your spirit, uh, point us towards your son and show us how he is worthy of all praise. Amen. Well, if you have a look on the reverse, you'll see the three points that I'd like to cover then today. What Psalm 126 says about God. Uh, how Psalm 126 points us to Jesus, and then thirdly, uh, what Psalm 126 might ask of us today. Well, let's start with then how it's, uh, what it says about God. Cameron pointed out at the beginning that this is one of the Songs of Ascents, uh, and the Songs of Ascents were a collection of uh, 16 psalms from 120 through 115 psalms from 120 through 134 uh, that the Jewish people sang as they made their way up to the temple. Uh, so quite literally, uh, the temple was up here, they were ascending, hence they're called the Songs of Ascents, and they would sing their way through all of them, one at a time. I suppose the modern day equivalent for us would be uh, what you might be listening to on your playlist as you drove to church this morning. Uh, perhaps if you listen to Christian music, uh, as some do, this, that, that would be the modern day Songs of Ascents. Uh, The song that we're looking at today, Psalm 126, is in two parts, and that's of course the reason why I've laid out the reading that way, uh, verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 6. Um, You will have noticed as Karen read it to us that it's uh, kind of like one of those songs that have a past and a present, a before and an after. Uh, And verses 1 through 3, they're kind of like the backstory, and then verses 4 through 6, that's the the songwriters singing about right here, right now. Well, let's have a look then uh, at the two parts. Firstly, verses 1 through 3, the backstory. Kind of the summary there is in verse 3. The Lord has done great things for us. The Lord has done great things for us. 
Let me read verses 1 through 3 again. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, so we are filled with joy. Well, verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. It's a memory, it seems, of uh, fond times, uh, actually of harder times to start with before God intervened. Uh, We're not told what it was that the fortunes of Zion needed restoring. Zion, by the way, is just another word for Jerusalem. Uh, We're not told what they were. Uh, Possibly it was famine. Uh, Maybe it was one of the many times in which Jerusalem was under siege from invaders. Maybe it's even a reference to the Babylonian exile, the time in which the Babylonian Empire conquered Israel and carted all their leaders off before, 70 years later, they were returned home. Whatever the exact situation, the effect of God's restoration is unmistakable. So look at verse 2. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. I wonder if you can recall an occasion when you have felt like this, when you have gone from a period of uh, great despair to unbridled rejoicing and celebration. Of course, for most of us, the situation that springs to mind most immediately is of a sporting occasion, uh, when victory has been snatched from defeat uh, right at the final minute. Now, you heard earlier that, uh, like Cameron, I'm from New South Wales originally, so let me just say it up front so there's no misunderstanding. I think Aussie rules is a stupid game, all right? I'll just say that out there. Um, I know that won't put me in good stead, but um, anyway, uh, it it occurred to me that um, the kind of feeling or sentiment that some might have from Psalm 126 would be if you could remember a time when your team had won a premiership. Now, that's a bit cruel, isn't it, uh, for South Australians? I uh, did some research and discovered the last time, for Port at least, that was 2004, and the Crows, as you know, 1998. But you could imagine, can't you, that, well, if your team were ever to win, uh, what it would be like. Oh, that's a bit cruel, isn't it? I'm really just sticking the knife in today. That kind of elation to follow a time of despair. Well, see how the delight of God's people here is so genuinely heartfelt that it's apparent for all to see. Verse 2, Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. See, the Israelites are so thrilled by what God has done for them, they have reacted so expressively that all the nations around can even see what's taking place. I wonder if this is why the nations of Canaan trembled at the arrival of the Israelites after God had rescued an entire nation from slavery in Egypt overnight. They knew what God had done for his people, and they knew that had implications for the whole world. Well, that's the first part of the song. The second part changes gear. second part drags us into the present, And uh, to use the musical image, there is a discordant note at this point. Maybe you might say it switches to a minor key. Because verse 4 opens, Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Restore our fortunes, Lord. 
Now, why? Why do they need their fortunes restoring again if God has done great things for them? What's gone wrong in the present day? Well, look, if you will, then, at verses 4 through 6. Let me read it out. Verse 4. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. So here's the great dilemma, the great problem with Psalm 126. Verses 1 through 3 recounted the great things God has done for his people in the past, but now, in the present, at this very moment, their experience is not of mouths filled with laughter or tongues with songs of joy. Their experience is of tears and of weeping. Once again, we're not told why. We don't know what's caused the Israelites to have this present experience, although there are some hints, I think, in verses 4 through 6. Uh, you'll have noticed, actually, the overwhelming sense of uh, or reference to agricultural imagery. I suspect it's possible that there had been a famine that had gripped the land. Because verse 4 speaks of the streams in the Negev. Verse 5 talks of reaping. Verse 6, it dreams of a time when there will be seed to sow and sheaves to carry. Whatever the exact situation, the lovely thing about Psalm 126 is that it is both honestly realistic, life in the present is at times unbearably hard, and at the same time, it is unfailingly optimistic. Because you notice how the psalm actually concludes in verses 5 and 6, those who sow with tears will reap with with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. It's a spectacular image in the second half of Psalm 126. I imagine a great panorama. I think of harvest time. The sun is shining gloriously. The farm workers are singing heartily as they bring in the crops. There are fat sheaves of rich produce slung over their shoulders. There is joyful laughter filling the air. Because after months and months of hard work, of planting and tending and waiting anxiously for rain and fighting off pestilence, at last, finally, this season's crop, it will be a resounding success. And yet at the moment, there is still hardship. So amidst present day struggles, how does Psalm 126 give a confidence Well, from verses 1 through 3. See, what God has done before gives us confidence about what God will do again. You'll see on your handout there that I've written underneath point one, uh, a basic tenet of modern psychology is that the best indicator of future behaviour is past performance. Well, there are some reflections on what Psalm 126 has to say about God and what he is like. Let me speak very briefly about how that psalm, written for the Old Testament Jews, points us forward to Jesus, the fullest revelation of God. There are many, many ways, of course, in which we can see the good things that the Lord has done for us. God's 
greatest restoration in Jesus. In Jesus, God has lived amongst us. He has lived as one of us. He has atoned for our sins when we could not. He has adopted us as children with Jesus as our elder sibling. But actually, as I read Psalm 126, I keep being drawn to Jesus' opening sermon in the New Testament. The one where he is both honestly realistic about the present and at the same time unfailingly optimistic about the future. Matthew 5 verse 3, on your handout. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn now, for they will be comforted. Well, what Psalm 126 says about God, how it points us to Jesus, let me finish then with a few reflections on what Psalm 126 might ask of you and I today. Uh, Let's start with what Psalm 126 doesn't ask of us. You see, despite the fact that it's full of agricultural imagery, it's not saying that you ought to sell up and turn your hand to farming. Uh, Although, interestingly, I suspect that if you did, this psalm would probably mean a whole lot more to you than it does to those of us who live in the city. Instead, what Psalm 126 does ask is if you will live by this truth about God and his character. Namely, the best indicator of God's future performance is his past behaviour. Will you live by that conviction every day until you see the Lord Jesus face to face? Now, the test of whether you will is if you are prepared to keep sowing even through tears in the confident expectation that eventually you will reap with joy. Will you keep calling on God to restore your fortunes, certain that he will do so because of his impeccable track record, never giving up? even when living by faith can be so incredibly hard. Now, I get that what makes that particularly difficult is that in Psalm 126, there is absolutely no indication of when God will intervene. Uh, To use that agricultural metaphor, you don't know if the bumper crop will be this year or in future years to come. And for that reason, one of the things that Psalm 126 does is that it denies a triumphalism in the Christian life. Instead, it accepts the present reality of hardship. It acknowledges our inability to eradicate it, but instead, it fixes our hope to look forward to God's restoration in his timing. Now, I'm not naive. I understand just how countercultural that is. After all, we live in a time and place here in 21st century Adelaide where, on the whole, we can mostly avoid suffering. Or, at the very least, we're very able to mitigate suffering pretty effectively. Culture watchers say that modern ethics are based almost entirely on the reduction of pain and the pursuit of pleasure instead of, in generations gone by, the conviction about what was right or wrong or sacrificial service of others. Now, for the record, I'm not being especially critical. I mean, who here wouldn't take pleasure over pain if you could get it? All power to you, if you can. Please don't mishear me. 
Christianity never glorifies hardship. Christianity never seeks out suffering as if somehow that makes you more commendable before God. That's not Christianity. That's kind of a self-flagellation. It's a type of asceticism. It's actually just like Buddhism, actually, in the end. And the worst thing about that kind of view is that it hardly paints God in attractive light to unbelievers. Who would be interested in a God who claims to give you good things only then to take them away and to see how you suffer? But notice, if you will, one last time how Psalm 126 works. Verse 3 says, We are filled with joy now. We are filled with joy now. Even as verse 4 calls on God to restore our fortunes. In other words, Psalm 126 is describing a joy that is based on God's actions which transcends our present experience. Even suffering and hardship. Psalm 126 is describing, I think, what Paul refers to in Philippians 4. I printed there on your handout. As the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And so today, I simply want to ask you, isn't this what you dream of? A real joy that's unaffected by hardship, that's unaffected by success or failure, a kind of joy that is powerfully attractive to those around us who spend every single waking minute desperately seeking meaning and fulfilment and satisfaction. I think this kind of joy will set us apart. Eventually, it will lead others around us who see the way in which we act, who see the great things God has done for us. It will cause them to ask us to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that we have. Ours is a God who can fill us with joy. If only we will ask and trust in his timing to provide. Well, let me finish then with two particular questions which Psalm 126 might ask of us today. I printed both of them there for you on your handout. Firstly, why do you find it so hard to rejoice in the midst of tears? Why do you find it so hard to rejoice in the midst of tears? Is it because actually your circumstances feel overwhelming? Never-ending stress at work? The heartbreak of relationships that are broken down and don't seem to be able to be reconciled? The devastation of ongoing physical pain? The dull ache of constant disappointment which washes away any hope? You might be sitting there thinking, oh, but Jeff, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how hard it is for me. And no, I don't. But that's not the point of Psalm 126. Psalm 126 says, it is only by sowing in tears that eventually we reap with songs of joy. So what Psalm 126 does is it leaves us with a choice to make. 
either we wallow in misery, either we try to dig ourselves out of our own hole, or we choose to start rejoicing now. Because what God has done before persuades us he will act again. Do you see the wonderful thing about Psalm 126? It doesn't dwell on our present experience. Instead, it fixes our gaze on God's character. Psalm 126 directs us not to look inwards for strength, but rather upwards to the one who loves us with an everlasting love. Uh, To borrow Paul's words in Romans 8, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul is saying God has gone this far for us already. He will not give up on us now. Why do you find it so hard to rejoice in the midst of tears? Second question then, what might help you to remember the great things the Lord has done for us? What might help you to remember the great things the Lord has done for us? Here's my simple suggestion uh, for the end of this talk. Every day for the week ahead, every day for the week ahead, make it your goal to tell one person of one thing God has done for you. Every day for a week, Tell one person of one thing God has done for you. It might be something from the big picture perspective, from a kind of cosmic view. Maybe it comes from the great storyline of the Bible, an episode which has captured your imagination. Maybe it's about how God rescued an entire nation from slavery overnight and brought them into a new land. Maybe it's the time when God plucked a humble shepherd boy from obscurity in the backwaters of Israel to become the nation's greatest king. Maybe it's the time when God took the vilest persecutor of the early church and converted him into the greatest church planter and evangelist the world has ever seen, the one through whom the gospel came to the ends of the earth, even to us here in Adelaide. Or maybe... The one thing you might tell one person, it might be from the details or the minutiae of your life, from those unexpected blessings that can be explained only by God's goodness and character and not dismissed as some kind of random chance. What do you think? One thing, once a day to one person, seven things in a week? Uh, At the very least, as I pointed out, Psalm 126 is one of the songs of ascents. It's meant to be sung on the way to church. So at the very least, how about today, whilst you have gathered with God's people, on the Lord's Day, you might start with sharing over morning tea, amongst all the other great things from the week gone by, one thing the Lord has done for you. Because that's how it will come to be said amongst the nations. The Lord has has done great things for them. And as people hear, they will ask you, how might they have that for themselves? Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for all that you've done for us. You've given us life. You've filled it so extraordinarily. But above all, you have given us your son, 
in his life, death, resurrection, and the promise of his return, we have hope. So we pray in this week, help us to keep our eyes fixed firmly on him. Amen.